Keep in touch with the Wolf Connection podcast on our Instagram handle at the Wolf Connection Pod or email us your questions, comments, and guest ideas to podcast at wolfconnection.org. Thank you for your support and howls to you all. Welcome to the Wolf Connection podcast. I'm your host, John Calvin. So just as we were talking before, it has been probably two years since we've had this individual on the podcast with us, but he is still the project lead for Voyager's Wolf Project. He has a PhD from the University of Minnesota, master's from North Michigan University, and he comes to us uh, south, just south of Voyager's National Park in Minnesota. Tom Gable, uh, how are you, sir? How's everything going? It's been a while, but uh, you guys have been very busy up there. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. Thanks for uh, inviting me back on the podcast. And yeah, we're just uh, hoping for a little bit of winter here in northern Minnesota. Yeah. So we've got a little bit of snow, but that's been very mild for us uh, this far. Yeah, it seems like it's been mild across. Uh, I know they just had a winter storm that hit the northeast uh, just, just uh, I think, over the weekend. But yeah, it's been pretty mild even out here for California standards. We were looking, hoping for snow in January, but I don't know if it's going to happen. We're still in like the fifties. So what's, what's it like up there for you guys in, in Minnesota in, or in the, in the park, instead of dusting? Yeah. Yeah. So we just got our first snow. We had, um, actually rain for Christmas. We had a brown Christmas here up North, which is very strange. It was above freezing. Um, usually, you know, a couple of years ago, we had like two feet of snow on the beginning of January, which is not atypical, but it's been pretty, pretty warm. We're going to be getting some colder temperatures this morning. It was negative one out. So we're, you know, getting back more into northern Minnesota, sort of standard northern Minnesota weather. Um, but it's just been a strange year. So it's hard to know what it's going to look like in, you know, two, three weeks and, and even, you know, two, three months. We're going to have a long winter, mild winter. It'll just be very interesting. Yeah, it's pretty unusual. I, and I live on a, I was just thinking of you guys the other day. Um, I was looking up some article in Minnesota or, for, or out of Minnesota, but I was looking at something about, I usually see thousands and thousands of migrating birds over over this area and they have they have actually it looks like they haven't even moved yet and it <laughs> it's very unusual for the years i've lived here I, I mean are there any other effects you think of this uh of this kind of unusually unseasonably warm weather up there where you guys are that, that you're noticing just on the on the landscape or or with with um with certain species well it's hard to say you know the, the interesting thing about winters here is winters have such a big impact on particularly wolf deer interactions. Um, and so it's going to be very interesting. You know, there's nothing noticeable right now that, uh, you know, aside from the lack of snow, yeah. but it'll be very interesting to see how this winter really plays out. And, you know, presumably if it continues the way it is, it'll probably be a pretty tough winter for wolves right. and a pretty good winter for deer. Um, you know, but winters can be strange and, you know, it could be like this and then we get dumped on in uh-huh. you know, February and, and it lasts in April. So you just never entirely yeah. know. But so far, you know, if it stays this way, I think we'll see some impacts. It's just, it'll take us a while to kind of measure those and yeah. figure them all out. Yeah, it's interesting how that how that all affects. Because we were even thinking, even here, that I wonder if the system just literally, the seasons are starting to push further and further because the summer is sort of extending, the fall is extending, and then the winter will yeah. be, you know, who knows, maybe January into, like you said, April, May even. You know, mm-hmm. in terms of colder temperatures and things like that, I wonder if it's that's either that or it's like they're gonna they're gonna start being more extreme. You know, like there's gonna be we're gonna be have mm-hmm. a lot of those winters like we had last year, where it's just insane mixed with winters that are crazy mild. 
that's that's um at least that's some of the theories I was I was reading about. We're we're, all, we're in the middle of it, honestly, to see how how this is all going to affect everything. And it's and it's good that you brought up the the wolf deer uh, interactions too, Tom, because that's that that was really when this all started uh, up by you guys. I got I again just remind me time wise, but I'll just give everybody kind of an overview of what what I'm I'm discussing. There was really this pushback, I guess I, I want to say from the hunting community about. They, they couldn't, uh, you know, wolves are killing fawns or something like that and deer up in, up in Minnesota. And uh, there, were, there were billboards up and you guys took the approach to really dive into the research about what was actually happening, how the wolf-deer interaction was actually affecting those populations. So what was, I guess, how did this all really begin that you, you guys sort of saw this come to fruition, that there, there was this major issue around deer hunting or fawns or, or fawns being killed or whatever it may be and what led you guys to sort of step in and do the research angle of it and and give everybody the information that you ultimately gave i think it had to be a few months ago but please correct me if i'm wrong yeah so there was really been two i'd say major things we've kind of discussed as it pertains to wolves and deer um the first was um a chapter of the minnesota deer hunters association put up a billboard um, just south of our study area a bit on the main highway. There's really one main highway to get kind of up to the Voyagers area. And uh, it's a big billboard that said, you know, wolves kill over 54,000 fawns each year. Uh, and then there's a picture of a fawn on it. And then the group stated online that, or at least this chapter, which uh, I should clarify, the chapter put up the billboard and we sort of had an organization and Minnesota Deer Hunters Association had stated that since that billboard was put up that, you know, that wasn't a factual billboard in terms of the, the information. So there is a, I don't want to say that the whole organization supported that, but a chapter did. And uh, so we had folks that were coming up to our study area and saying, Hey, did you see this billboard? Is that true? Does that make any sense? You know, you know, and, and the group or the chapter had said they put up that billboard to support wolf management. You know, they want there to be a, a wolf hunting or trapping season because ostensibly that would then allow more fawns to survive based on their logic and so what we kind of looked at was whether or not that had any weight or, or uh, was you know substantial or a good argument or, or not based on the scientific information it wasn't an assessment of whether or not you know hunting wolves or wolf management is good or bad it was just simply saying do wolves kill this many deer fawns do we know that and would killing wolves actually increase the number of fawns that survived and the short answer without getting into all the, the details are uh, we don't really know how many fawns wolves actually kill in places like northern Minnesota because that data really doesn't exist that much. You know, our project has has some of that data, but other than that, it, there's really no information. Um, so it's hard to, so, you know, how you come up with an estimate for the state is pretty hard to say. Uh, so we don't think it was accurate or at least there's no way to, there's no real data to support that claim. The uh, second part of it, you know, would, would killing wolves actually help increase the number of deer fawns on the landscape uh, was also has very little scientific evidence to support it, in part because um, deer fawns are just kind of born to die. And most fawns, regardless of whether they're in an area with wolves or without wolves, have very high mortality rates. And oftentimes, most fawn mortality is from predators, predation. Um, and so if it's not wolves that are killing deer fawns it's going to be coyotes or bears or bobcats 
um, or things like that. So you get rid of wolves, it's really not going to increase predation. And if you get rid of wool or get rid of predators almost entirely, most fawns are still probably going to die. Uh, there was a study in Delaware that had in a predator-free area, there were no predators in that area. And they still found that 40% of deer fawns survived. So 60% died. And they're dying from things such as starvation, uh, genetic disease, various things like that. And so the idea here is that predation is compensatory, which is an ecological concept, which basically means that um, there's a certain percent of the population that's going to die from one cause or another. And so if they're not going to die of predators, then they'll die of malnutrition uh, or something like that. So by getting rid of the predators, you don't really actually increase the number that are around because they were going to die regardless. So, so that was our first sort of um, area where we kind of got into um, addressing the science behind that. And our goal wasn't truly to, to remain focused on what does the peer-reviewed literature say, you know, what do we know or feel confident in our understanding and what don't we know. Um, it wasn't really an assessment of wolf management in any way. And then the second one is uh, of late in northern Minnesota and, and a lot of the Great Lakes states, there's been a lot of discussion about the impact wolves are having on deer populations uh, across much of the Midwest, um, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Deer hunting success, so the number of deer harvested, has, has decreased in most of these states. Um, and many of the sportsmen are, are claiming that it's due to increased number of wolves. Um, and that we need to start removing wolves so that will help deer hunting uh, and, and allow the deer herd to rebound. And we got into that because we were, in, frankly, quite curious and just understanding the relationship between wolves, deer, and, and deer hunter success. You know, do, is there a relationship? If so, what does that relationship look like? And um, we knew that deer populations have decreased in the state recently in northern Minnesota. Um, our, our data in our localized area shows that, and I believe state level data shows that too. And you see that pattern in, in Wisconsin, the upper peninsula of Michigan, in part because for us in 2022 and 2023, we had two very long winters that lasted for a very long time. And long winters are very bad on deer. Um, and wolves are part of what make winters bad on deer. So it's not just saying like, oh, it was snowy and all the deer just died from the snow. It's the snow makes it hard for deer to escape wolves. And so therefore it's sort of these effects kind of accumulate. Um, but what we found after we looked at the, the data over the past uh, 12 years, which is what was publicly accessible in Northern Minnesota, was that deer hunting success uh, or deer hunter success, I should say, which is the number of deer harvested per hunter, actually was positively correlated with wolf density. So basically as wolf populations were higher, you generally saw higher deer hunter success. And that was uh, met by uh, a lot of disdain um, from the hunting community. Um, and it wasn't again a statement on wolf management or should we or should we not hunt wolves? It was simply looking at those patterns. And that pattern is actually pretty simple to understand. Um, when there's more deer around, you have more wolves around, you have higher wolf densities because they have more food. So like most animals, as your food goes up, there's gonna be more animals. That's pretty straightforward. And then likewise, deer hunters are more successful when there's more deer around because they also are seeing more deer. So, that, so it's really not all that surprising that the two are correlated, um, but that doesn't, you know, that doesn't 
uh, support the the um, sort of primary narrative that a lot of um, hunting organizations in northern Minnesota, et cetera, um, are putting forward. And so, you know, we are immediately chastised, I would say, by a, that segment of the population as being biased and we are skewing the data. We are animal rights activists who are secretly had an agenda, et cetera, which is really unfortunate, actually, you know, because we really were just looking at the, the data and trying to make um, the most sense of it in, in our minds. Um, and I think the premise actually is quite straightforward, honestly, as well. And, and I think what most biologists would expect, but because it doesn't align with some perspectives, you know, we've, we've dealt with some heat from that. Um, but I guess that's just, you know, doing research on wolves, to be honest, you know, it's, it's not going to be, uh, yeah, people are, feel very passionate about the topic. So, so you, did you find that wolves were a, a primary predator of fawns? I mean, in comparison to black bear and, and coyotes, for example, it sort of goes, well, it seems like it goes against that, that basic idea we've heard, which is that in a normal scenario, wolves hunt as a pack and they tend to kill things that are bigger than them to, to, I mean, to feed the, to feed that pack, that, that, that machine. And this sounds like solitary animals hunting for smaller game maybe, but but sort of unusual or, or are wolves a primary predator of, of baby deer? So they probably are. I, we don't know. So, so two, a couple of things are important to clarify because we don't tag, you know, we study wolf creation from the wolf's perspective, which means all we can say is this is the number of fawns that these wolves are killing. We aren't saying it from the fawns perspective. So we don't know like X percentage from wolves, X percentage from bears, et cetera. There have been studies like that in Northern Minnesota Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and they found, you know, there was one study in the upper, in northern Minnesota that found that bears and wolves are sort of equally responsible for, you know, or are the top predators, so to speak, of, of deer fawns in northern Minnesota. Uh, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, uh, other predators, I think it was bears and and coyotes that were the two primary predators, and wolves, I think, were third in that study. Um, so. So wolves are, depending where you're at, wolves are going to be one of, I'd say, the primary predators, but maybe not always. It just depends. And part of the reason for that is wolves occur at relatively low densities as predators are concerned. And because they're larger, they require more food. Animals like bears and coyotes and bobcats can occur at much higher densities. And so that means that they are going to, as a, there's just going to be more coyotes than you're going to have wolves in the same unit area which means that even if they kill fewer fawns, cumulatively that the population of coyotes or bears are going to kill more fawns just because there's more of them around, or at least that's how it works in some areas. Um, the second point is that during winter or during summer in our area, like probably lots of the Midwest and, and parts of you know similar parts, uh, Southern boreal systems in Canada, wolves are primarily actually hunting by themselves during the summertime. So they are primarily solitary predators. Um, you know, they come back to the packs down at rendezvous site where the pups are at and kind of reconvene with their pack members, but they are primarily out by themselves. And so you do see this interesting switch for wolves in our areas in most of the winter. They're hunting as a, as a group, hunting largely deer um, during the wintertime. And then once spring hits and the pups are born, the pack kind of fragments in the sense that they don't really do a lot of traveling and hunting together. And part of that's probably adaptive because if a deer fawn, when it's born, is about 
eight to 10 pounds, maybe, you know, they're pretty small. And so it probably doesn't make sense for wolves to hunt together because if they kill a fawn, then they have to split it. And when you're thinking about hunting a fawn, uh, the, the real challenge is to find the fawn, you know, killing them isn't the challenge. Once you find it easy to kill. And so your, your odds of, you know, of, you know, two wolves together, finding a fawn might be a little better than one, but then you have to split it. So probably energetically, it's more beneficial if they just go by themselves, they might kill fawns less frequently, but it still might mean they get, it might mean they may get more food than if they were with another wolf. Makes sense. I mean, it all, it all really comes down to it. It, it, this is interesting. I feel like when we were just at the top of this, when we were talking about weather and shifting possibly systems and things like that and, and longer winters or shorter winters, but more extreme, like Stephen was saying, is do we think that these are going to ultimately have impacts? Because we always see these issues out in the West, in the, in Wyoming, Idaho, Montana, when we talk about the elk herds or we talk about the caribou herds in, in Canada in terms of what's actually the effect on these ungulate herds. Is it actually, is it wolves, which is usually the thing that, that people go to right away? Is it a combo of things, whether it's weather, deep snowfall, like you said, over the last two years? Was it only a matter of time, you think, before this became, because it didn't seem like in, in the 10-year history of the project, <laughs> this really didn't seem as though this was something that was at the forefront of either research or or kind of an issue. This just seemed to happen more recently. Was it, did you think only a matter of time until a chapter of some organization was saying, hey, we're not getting the 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 catch that we normally get. And so we need to figure out what the issue is and we're going to go with the predator being the problem as, as the initiator. I think it's probably a combination. I don't think I saw it as inevitable. I figured it would be once wolves are probably fully delisted, we would probably see, you know, if, if, and when they are, that there'd be more of that sort of immediate discussion of now, what do we, what does the state do? Um, it's not surprising that we've heard for a long, from, from different hunting hunters in our area and landowners, you know, a lot of these sentiments about wolves. So in some sense, it's not surprising that that exists. And obviously that combined with reduced deer hunting due to hunters seeing less deer, um, it's not entirely surprising that that would be the conclusion. Um, you know, there's, and there's a couple other things that I think are going on. Um, you know, one of it's obviously the winters. It's very hard for people to understand how winters impact animals, particularly deer. It's, you know, because you're not out there seeing a deer struggling all the time. Most of the deer people are going to see are going to be ones that are maybe around people that are eating, you know, food that people have put out and things like that. You're not going to see the deer that's just wandering around in the woods, slowly starving and becoming malnourished and then healing over and dying or, you know, unable to run. The wolves find it and kill it. Most people aren't going to have going to be aware of that. And it's very hard for people to understand that, let's say wolves kill deer during a hard winter. Their assumption is, oh, if the wolf wasn't here, that deer would still be alive at the end of the winter. Because it's hard for people to understand these ideas of like, no, that deer was going to die probably regardless. Wolves were just sort of like the final touch uh, on this deer's challenging winter. So I think that that's part of it is the winter. I think the other thing is people are going out and let's say they're deer hunting and they are seeing less deer because there's less of them around right now. Um, the other thing is people have, as time's gone on, our technology to monitor animals has gone up tremendously in particular trail cameras. So the number of trail cameras that are probably in the woods, I would only guess has probably increased exponentially over the last five, six years. 
Whereas, you know, when we started our project, most people probably didn't have trail cameras out. They were, they weren't super necessarily reliable. Um, you know, they were expensive. I mean, some more reasonable, but they've just, things have gotten a lot cheaper and people have realized how awesome the technology is. Right. And so when people put out these trail cameras, they get to see things that they never would see before. Right. And a lot of trail cameras, people get wolves and they get wolves frequently. And that's because people often put their trail cameras in areas that wolves like to travel on, such as roads, trails, uh, you know, hiking paths they've made to their deer stands, things like that. And so they're going to all of a sudden now they went, let's say, 10 years ago. The only time they might know, get any information about wolves, if there was some snow on the ground and they saw some tracks or maybe they saw one while they were out hunting. Now, though, you have a trail camera that, you know, is connected to a cell tower that every time you see a wolf is, is sending you an email, a message, right, saying, you know, here's basically here's the wolf pictures, right? And so, and if you've got your camera on a wolf travel corridor, you know, you come up with these conclusions uh, that, you know, there's more wolves than deer. I hear that a lot, right? I see more wolves than deer these days. Um, and part of that's because of this ability to monitor and see what's going on in a way we never could see. People just couldn't see historically. Um, and so that also plays a role into some of this. You know, if, if you didn't have trail cameras that were recording all of these photos, I think that it would maybe be a little different story because you wouldn't have all this photographic evidence. Um, but the real challenge here is, is that folks uh, see in their minds a correlation between, okay, we're seeing more deer on our cameras, maybe in person from time to time, or more wolves, sorry, on camera and in person, and we're seeing less deer. So therefore, that, that those two must be connected, as opposed to thinking, okay, well, there's maybe really good reasons why you're now seeing more wolves than you might have historically. And there's also a good reason why you might be seeing less deer, and the two don't necessarily have to be causally related. They might, you know, there there are other explanations that are going on um, and could explain those patterns, but that's very hard for someone to understand. If you've already got a particular perspective or bent, you're going to interpret all of that information through a particular lens. And that's what makes it challenging uh, at that point to kind of reach like what's really going on because someone's convinced, you know, this supports a particular perspective, not, okay, what does this evidence show? What are the things we need to consider? And then how do we arrive at a, you know, let's say sound conclusion to what's actually going on. And so, and that's just some of the challenges I think that come along with, you know, some of these things are complex and it's challenging for someone who's just going out in the, the woods, let's say for a couple of weeks, a year or something, to think through all of those complexities that are associated with the information that they're getting. Yeah. I think that's, that's always the, the tough part, obviously for all of you that are in this field, when you have the scientific evidence and you do the research and when your findings and your conclusions come out, it does, like you say, it doesn't sit well with the perspective that's already out there for some and obviously it's, it's, it's a little bit more work. It's more of doing the people side of the work as opposed to the animal side of the work, which I'm sure we've heard from a couple of people that it's, it's easier to do the animal work than it is kind of do the, the information uh, giving out to the, to the folks and, and see what the deal is there. Absolutely. So if we, yeah, I'm sure. And I mean, if we, if we move from this to really, I think you're, I, I think, I'm pretty sure this is your this is your uh, um, area of study that you you do mostly, which is the wolf beaver um, 
interactions and stuff like that. I know this is the last, I know long ago in a galaxy far, far away when we spoke the first time, I know this was really interesting, but you guys have really found out some incredible dynamics and, and really are able to show this visually, which I think it was, it was on your Instagram for sure, but really just showing how the ecosystem and the, the, the wetland or the, or the marsh areas really take shape and showing how wolves and beavers and that interaction happens. So from what I can gather, and obviously you go into it because this is your, your, your jam, it, it seems as though wolves are taking beavers or ambushing beavers closer to the closer to their dams or closer to where their 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 habitat is or what's the what's the deal there because it's affecting i guess how the forest is being cut down by beavers and then the the lakes and everything that sort of permeates once that's all done so just go into that too and what you guys have found out sure absolutely so one thing that's important to note uh about sort of wolf beaver interactions is it's particularly fascinating because you have wolves which as an apex predator uh are thought to have a lot of larger ecological impacts by killing their prey and instilling fear and things like that. And then you have beavers, which just by being a beaver have huge ecological impacts wherever they live by cutting trees and damming up rivers and, and things like that. So once you have this sort of instance where you have wolves now killing beavers, there's always this potential or it seemed like there was potential for there to be some pretty potentially sizable uh, ecological impacts from that. And by sizable, I don't mean like altering the entire landscape but sizable in terms of if you add up like the num- amount of land impacted so um so what we found is two things uh a couple of years ago we published a study where we showed how wolves were influencing where beavers build wetlands uh because they were killing beavers in certain areas and basically preventing beavers from creating wetlands in certain spots so wolves are somehow connected to where wetlands can be established in our area um then our most recent research which we published uh about I think about two months ago now, showed uh, basically showed how wolves are connected to forest level uh, processes by killing beavers. And um, so there's a couple of things that are helpful to understand before we kind of get into the details. The first is that when beavers cut trees, um, they impact forests pretty substantially. If you've ever been around a beaver pond or in the area where there's beavers, it doesn't take a genius to show up to a beaver in uh, a beaver an area where there's beavers and see, yeah, they've really changed this area. And, and beavers primarily change it because they don't fell and cut all the trees; they cut specific ones, largely deciduous trees, which have a lot of bark and nutrients, and they leave a lot of the coniferous trees. And so, by cutting certain trees, beavers kind of push forests towards certain compositions. Okay, so that's kind of helpful to understand. And the other thing that's helpful to understand is the amount of forest that beavers are going to change is going to be directly dependent to how far from water they actually want to go to cut trees. So if they cut trees further from water, they're going to impact more forest than they would if they stayed closer to water. So what we were interested in understanding is whether or not wolves uh, are basically a sort of evolutionary pressure that causes beavers to stay closer to water and forage closer to water because beavers don't want to go further because they're effectively concerned they're going to get eaten by wolves. And so we started looking at where wolves were killing beavers and where they were ambushing them. And what we found is that wolves were uh, disproportionately killing and ambushing beavers farther from water than beavers typically want to cut trees. So basically wolves were you know, so on average, beavers forage 
about 12 to 15 meters from water. That's typically how far they're going to go on average. Whereas wolves, on average, kill beavers between like 24 and like almost 30 meters from water. So it's a substantial distance further. And these are meters, not feet. So, I mean, we're talking about, you know, 30, 40 feet difference, which for a beaver is a lot. (laughs) And that's just so they can stay in the cover, in cover. That's so wolves can stay in timber when they're hunting? Uh, or Not necessarily. It's We suspect twofold. The one is that wolves probably just have higher hunting success when beavers are farther away from water because when beavers are close to water and, and a wolf encounters them, the beaver basically just has to get back to water to escape. And so if you're closer to water and you have a higher probability a beaver does of, okay, wolf bit me, but I got away and I got back to water. Whereas if you're, let's say, 30 meters into the woods, you're 100 feet from water, a lot more challenging to get away from a wolf. And so just kind of naturally, given those dynamics, wolves are probably going to be more successful at killing a beaver when they see them farther from water. The other reason is that, so this is kind of where we also tried to get at, what are beavers doing? Try to understand their behavior. And so we put a bunch of trail cameras at the spots beavers were foraging. And beavers primarily cut trees by using very obvious trails that are called feeding trails. And if you go to a beaver pond, you'll see these really prominent trails that beavers are using to go into the woods. Um, and so that's where we put cameras on. And what we were interested in is how does beaver behavior change as these trails get longer? Do beavers spend more time on land? Do they make more trips if they have to go farther from water? And and basically that's what we found is on these longer trails, beavers end up spending more time for each trip to go into the woods to get food. And then they also make more trips on those trails. So this is where this gets a bit complicated uh, because people think, oh, well, they're, they're actually spending more time farther away from water, the beavers are, than closer to water. And that's actually not the case. And I'll try to illustrate this distinctly, but this is, I, I know this is complicated because <laughs> it took me forever trying to type this up on a social media post to make it simple. Um, but when beavers are at, around their pond, they have a bunch of really short trails, you know, maybe 10 meters long. And then they have a couple really long ones, maybe, right? So on a, if you looked at beavers' entire time they spend foraging, right? You add up all the time they spend on all these different trails. Most of their foraging is going to occur on short trails close to water because there's a lot more shorter trails than there are longer trails. But if you looked at an individual trail basis, a beaver will spend more time on a long trail than a short trail. So while there's fewer long trails than shorter trails, beavers are more vulnerable to getting killed when they're on the long ones than the short ones because they're going to spend more time when those are, are there. And so that's probably why wolves are disproportionately picking beavers off on these longer trails is that that's where they're encountering beavers in vulnerable areas more often. Um, the other reason why wolves are, are amb- oh, I should back up and say, so the interesting question though is how do wolves know to ambush beavers on these longer trails? That's kind of the fascinating perspective because if a wolf was just choosing any trail at random, they would choose short trails because there's a lot more of them than the long ones. But what we found is that's not actually what wolves are doing. They're generally waiting on longer trails. And so what we suspect, and this is again where this differentiation between long and short trails and the time they spend is important. Because beavers spend more time using a long trail than a short trail, 
Beavers are going to deposit more scent along those longer trails because they're making more trips, meaning that their scent gets deposited more often and they're spending more time. And so if a wolf is, let's say, presumably picking ambushing locations based on scent, if they're wandering around a pond, they're probably going to be looking for where is the beaver scent the most, uh, the strongest to sort of imply that's the best spot to wait. And so to a wolf, they think, oh, the long trail probably is the better spot to wait than the short trail because beavers are going to use that longer trail more often than they are a shorter trail. Um, and so we think that's likely why wolves are also ambushing beavers on short or on these longer trails. And I, and I get that that might be super, seems super complicated and nuanced. And it, and it sort of is. The, the idea is simpler. It's almost easier to draw it out, honestly, like sketch out a pond and draw some little example trails and <laughs> and show what it is. But anyways, but the, the big picture, you know, takeaway here is that because wolves are disproportionately hunting and killing beavers farther from water, wolves are effectively this force that's kind of shaping beaver foraging behavior and kind of pushing beavers closer to water. And by pushing beavers closer to water, that prevents beavers from foraging farther from water and converting forests to a different forest type. Um, and so we estimate that wolves are likely influencing somewhere between like one and a half and to 3% of the forest in our area by impacting beaver foraging. And, and part of that's because we just have a ton of beaver ponds in our area. And so there's just going to be a lot more forest um, that, that wolves can impact. Whereas if you went to an area that didn't have many beavers, you, that number would be much, much smaller probably because there's just not that many beaver ponds around. And I don't mean to, and uh, this is like, to me personally, this stuff is fascinating. Just these micro stories of how nature works and things like that. But I, and this, so this is not to slight the research at all, but my curiosity is, is what, what meaningful things can you do with this kind of research? Um, it's just, I mean, it's fascinating, but I'm totally curious about what the, what stepping stone is this for, for, for what next thing? Well, that's a good question. That, and, uh, in some sense, what I'm going to tell you is probably going to be like, huh, but I was like, I don't know what you're going to do with it. I don't know what anyone will do with it. You know, <laughs> like, awesome, um, though. and I don't, and I don't mean that in like a negative sense. It's yeah, like, exactly. you know, what, what we're interested in or what I'm interested in particularly is, is understanding how the natural world functions. And there are a lot of things in the natural world that we think, ah, this seems common sense. But without having information to support that, it's really hard to actually know it. So like we've published, you know, shared some of these things online and people say, well, why'd you have to spend money? We knew that was going on. <laughs> it's like, we know people suspected that was going on, but we didn't know, you need to right? Know, we yeah. didn't have the data and ecosystems are very complex and there's all sorts of things where people thought it worked this way and then they find out actually they're totally wrong. So if you don't peruse or, or explore things that you think seem logical, but you don't have data, there's a lot that we just would never learn. I mean, for a long time, people believe that the, um, the earth had to revolve around uh, or the sun had to revolve around the earth, right? Like that seemed logical, right? And then we learned actually that wasn't the case. So there's a lot of things that, that seem simple that actually are complex. Um, and in this instance, you know, I think if nothing else, um, we're really focused on just trying to understand uh, how wolf predation influences beavers and the larger ecosystem as a whole. And so by taking this work, pairing it with our earlier work, we've basically now shown, like prior to our work, no one really understood in an arboreal system that wolves 
both impacted wetlands and impacted forests by killing beavers. You know, like maybe someone would say, yeah, that that makes some sense that that might happen, but there really wasn't any evidence to support that. And now we've said like, we've shown strong evidence about wetlands and forests, which is a large part of the boreal ecosystem that wolves are having and influencing to a degree. Now, um, but yeah, there's a lot of work that I, I can't say like, oh yeah, this is going to magically change <laughs> policy or, you know, it's going to change management. It probably won't, won't, uh, in any meaningful way. Uh, it's just like what it is. So, never know. um, but, but yeah, I, I think in those things, like we got interested in it because it was like, would, wouldn't that be interesting if the data showed that, uh, that wolves were connected to forest level processes? Like we thought like, that's kind of an interesting thing, or maybe they're not. There had been a lot of actually discussion in the scientific literature, mainly on a, the beaver side of things, not on the wolf side of things, about do beavers, like what role does predation play in shaping how beavers forage? There's lots and lots of papers on that. And some people thought that wolves had a big impact, that predators had a big impact, but no one could really demonstrate it because they just didn't have the wolf perspective to actually get the data. They could say, oh yeah, these beavers are cutting trees this way. We think that's because of wolves, but we really don't know. Um, and so, and I think that's where it's like, well, we have the wolf data. We can look <laughs> at that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, I personally think it's amazing. I mean, I love that someone's doing this type of research. It's so amazing to just know these kind of, again, like micro environments. Um, it always reminds me of the, you know, Sand County Almanac, Aldo Leopold type, way of looking at nature just little micro scenarios that are really important to understand you don't really know why they're important but they are um so i just have a beaver question though sure so so it seems so what you're saying is they they're 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 targeting certain types of trees with that have i i assume a certain thickness of bark or or harbor the most nutrients or densest nutrients in 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 bark they won't just keep pushing out endlessly, I assume. So what happens when a beaver's kind of, it's gone as far as it's comfortable going and it's eaten up all of those optimal trees, what does a beaver do then? It moves or it switches to less optimal diet? That's a, a very good point. So what we uh, speculate in our paper, so so what beavers typically do is once they run out of food, they move, they go somewhere else where there's you know presumably more food uh, and that might be just downstream, it might be a long distance away. And so what we speculate in the paper actually is that wolves likely are also influencing uh, through a different mechanism, how beavers sort of uh, occupy, how long they occupy wetlands, because effectively they're constraining the amount of food around the ponds, right? So if, if there were no wolves, there'd be, let's say, X amount of food, but now wolves come in, so there's less than X amount of food. And so now beavers do have that question, do we forage further inland or do we move? Um, and so, but that's one of those things that's super challenging. Again, it's one of those concepts that in principle seems very simple, like, oh yeah, if they don't have food, they go elsewhere. But if you went out and say, okay, we're going to try to show this, it's almost, I mean, it's really complicated to show that you'd have to measure so many different variables to illustrate that. So I suspect that's one of those things. Maybe someday someone will look at that, you know, maybe someday we'll get courageous and, you know, try to see if we can answer that question. But I think that's one that would be might uh, take a long time to, to demonstrate. But I think it seems to be a, a logical conclusion, you know, if wolves are indeed impacting how far beavers will go from water. Yeah, it does seem like a, a familiar thing that 
predators seem to do is is move non-predatory species around. I mean, is there a positive element to them being being pushed? Uh, I mean, without the risk of predation, I, I assume they just consume timber further and further out. Uh, I imagine with with that risk of running into a predator, it does keep them moving locations. But I'd imagine that there's a significant risk of being killed doing that as well, moving between bodies of water. Yeah, I think the one thing that's especially important to note with beavers, and this is where things are interesting, is because people have asked us this a lot. I said, "Oh, is this so? Is this good or bad? Are we right. doing a good or a bad thing here?" Yeah. And I would say, like, it's really neither in some sense. Like, you know, there are instances where, let's say, ungulate populations that have no predators can browse forage intensively and and cause, you know let's say um, some ecological degradation that takes a long time to come back. Mm -hmm. Beavers are a little different though, because unlike let's say deer elk that kind of move around the landscape and kind of can affect all of it, they can really only affect small localized areas. And when beavers cut trees, they also stimulate all sorts of other ecological processes that are important. You know, they create dead wood, they create complex forests, create habitat for other species. So it's, it's sort of one of these things where it's like, it's neither really good or bad. It probably depends like, you know, what kind of animal are you? Do you <laughs> rely on beavers to create habitat for you or, or don't you? Right, right. But I, but it doesn't, you know, I would say wolves are, are, um, are just, it's just sort of like, this is how the system is kind of meant to function. And, um, uh, that's neither good or bad or, you know, no one's the villain here. It's just animals doing what animals do. Love it. Yeah. Man. It's so it's fascinating. Cool. You're right. I mean, yeah, I remember that from last time we were just, we were hooked on this and now, and now you guys have, like you were saying, the, the information, the research, the, the footage, some of the footage and the photos that you guys have gotten on these truck cams is just unbelievable that you're able to capture some of this stuff and be able to show the public, which I, I think only hopefully peaks interest in wondering how these things, like you said, like with Steven saying, work on a micro level, because it's just, you wouldn't, like you say, it's so easy to assume something but then when you really get down to it on a base level of how complicated and how complex all of this stuff is, it really is, it really is awesome to see what you guys are, are looking at. It's so awesome. Um, sure. I mean, the, the, the last, uh, the, the, the third thing and, and what, what's really cool about you guys, Voyager, Voyagers in particular, you, Tom, and, and just all the work you guys are doing is that you hit so many different angles. So that's why the three main things and we're on the third thing now, I think, which is, you guys are helping promote coexistence also, which I think there was this big major project. I think that was started, I believe, and again, correct me if I'm wrong. I think when the symposium was held in 2022, the international wolf symposium in 2022, it was this, it was this big ranch that you were, you, there was an undertaking of putting all this fencing around this large area of, of a ranch to again, you know, non-lethally expel, you know, predators, mostly wolves, but just to see how this would work and the challenges that came with that. And again, going through you guys' Instagram, which again, if nobody's following Voyager's Wolf Project, please follow them on Instagram. It's just, it's such a wealth of information. They always, it's almost daily, it's sometimes twice a day with the research that happens there. So, there was a lot of fencing and then there was one wolf or a couple of wolves that were able to figure out one how to, I think, go underneath and then jump over. So there was a couple of different facets there. So just same that you did with the other two, give people who are listening just a, a basic idea of what the 
thought process for this particular project was to build this fencing and to obviously help promote things non-lethally and coexistence-wise? And what were the challenges there and what you guys had to deal with? Um, specifically, I'll just name Wolf uh, 07T, which is what you guys, I think, generally called uh, it, uh, he or she. I can't remember he, what it was. He, yep. he. yeah. Yeah. Uh, and just, yeah, what was going on with that whole situation there? Absolutely. So um, so I think in 2022, uh, when I probably saw the symposium, is we had... We, that was like year two of fence construction and we were just yes. wrapping it up when that symposium happened and because we thought it was going to take a year we started building this the seven and a half mile long fence uh around the perimeter of this cattle ranch which is 1500 acres um and we started in 2021 i thought naively oh we'll just get this done in a, a summer and uh that was not <laughs> correct and, and it's a lot more time consuming I mean, if that was all you were doing all summer, sure, you could have done. But neither our project nor our partners, the, the rancher or USDA Wildlife Services, had their whole summer to dedicate to doing that. So that didn't end up happening. Um, and so it took us a lot longer to kind of get that, the fence really going. Um, so we finished it in 2022, which meant that uh, this past summer was the first year we got to see how does this thing actually going to work. And I should back up and note a little bit about this ranch is this ranch sits in the middle of our study area and literally is kind of out in the forest. Uh, it used to be an old um, a ranch where they kept all the draft horses when they first logged the area back in the 20s and 30s. Um, and it's at the confluence of these creeks and rivers and then has just kind of remained out there as the forest has kind of grown up. I mean, there's literally it's just boreal forest around it. Um, and so as a result, they've had a lot of issues with wolves over the years. Um, I think. I can't remember how many years, but I think it's been pretty much two decades prior to the start of the ranch. They had had wolves killing calves and then wolves would get killed as a result for killing calves. Um, so there's kind of just endless cycle of conflict and, and it wasn't getting any better, uh, you know, as time went on, meaning that the rancher was frustrated, uh, you know, lots of money was getting spent to deal with this problem. And then we were starting to get frustrated because we had wolves that were getting killed on that ranch, some who hadn't caused any issues um, that we knew of. And so there's just kind of no one was winning from the situation. So we decided to try to get together and figure out a way to move forward uh, that would maybe be a better path for everybody where we had all kind of win in some sense. And that's what we did. And so we decided on the fence and we thought, OK, if we can keep a barrier, keep the wolves off the ranch, you know, that'll stop them from killing calves. Well, that's easy. It's a, it's a nice thought uh, until you realize how massive seven and a half miles is. Uh, and particularly in undulating terrain with wetlands, creeks, rivers, you know, that's a, a large area. And when you consider the fact that a wolf needs probably about, I don't know, maybe a, a foot, a gap of a foot maybe to get under a fence. I mean, and so they don't need a big area. So anyway, so what we've got this fence up and this year we started to, to monitor how it went. We collared some wolves in and around this ranch and we quickly figured out that a couple wolves had figured out how to get on this past this fence. Um, so there's a breeding female of the Windsong pack, which is the pack that primarily occupied the area by the ranch this year. And uh, she kept digging under. She would find a hole, get on. Uh, we'd close that hole. She'd go out through another hole that she found somewhere. And by holes, it's not like they were obvious. It was like there was a little tiny thing and she dug it out. You know, she dug out a hole. And, um, you know, there's... Two times, actually, this summer, we thought like we had literally that we thought the place was so well secured that we thought we had actually trapped her on. And I kid you not, we like 
corralled her off of the ranch with our team went out there and with our inflammatory antenna and we you know saw her and pushed her through where we walked through all the brush and just scared her till we knew she'd left um so like we thought we had had you know this place locked down turns out that wasn't the case and and what we really found is she primarily had learned to go to the wetland areas where the ground was really soft and dig under because it was soft the soil was soft and she could easily get through so when we realized that was the case we made some adjustments to the fence and i won't get into all that details you can go on our social media to, to read a little bit about that but we were able to keep her off uh starting in probably mid-august uh but before that she was on the ranch pretty much every day um and the reason she was on the ranch she didn't kill any calves actually but she was eating calf poop um because a lot of calf poop is full of nutrients because these calves are nursing and there's i believe it's colostrum that's in the, the calf scat the, the scats are literally white um uh that you see yeah, and so interesting. she was going around uh we think eating these calf scats and that's why she wanted to get in the pasture and she'd likely done this for the past couple of years so this was probably the food source she had depended upon it's easy there was like 200 calves so you can just imagine how many calf scats are being produced every day you know right. probably like a, a buffet right so she had huge incentive to get on that ranch probably um then we also collared her uh one-year-old offspring whose name was uh 07t um and so the bat wolf was collared under very different circumstances um what ended up happening unfortunately is in the middle of the summer we had a couple calves that were killed on that ranch um and they were clearly killed by wolves and the rancher and his uh family had seen an uncollared wolf out there that looked pretty scrawny and uh, looked a bit younger. And so kind of came to the point where it's like, okay, well, we have to deal with this problem one way or the other. And we said, you know, either this wolf has to be taken out because it's causing issues and probably isn't going to stop. Or we'll, we try to catch it, put a collar on it and we try to learn from it. Um, and so that's what happened is we you know our on our project we instead of and this was a big shift i would say on this ranch you know historically the calf would get called and and you know usda trappers would come in and they would set their traps and catch wolves and, and remove those wolves presumably that they're catching problem wolves and in this instance we came in we put our research traps but this time we caught a wolf to put a gps collar on it and move it outside of the fence to then learn what we could from it and we did learn a lot from that wolf. Um, unfortunately, we learned some information we didn't want to know, which was that this wolf had learned how to jump over parts of this fence. Um, and that was a real bummer. Um, and it was the only wolf that we're aware of that figured this out. We're not sure how it figured it out. Um, but then later in the summer, this wolf killed another calf. Um, and so then again, we had another sort of dilemma of what do we do? You know, this wolf has already killed a couple then killed another one and do we you know what's the approach and, and fortunately we had a, a real sort of unified approach through with the rancher wildlife services and our project uh to kind of work through this as best we could non-lethally the problem is when this wolf was jumping a fence it's kind of like well we've kind of already tried that you know we're we tried all the tools we can we've already given them sort of one bonus uh you know or, or break and it's like, if this wolf is going to continue to cause problems, like, you know, there's just no way we can, the only way to stop this problem is to remove the wolf. Um, uh, but the rancher said after the, the last wolf was, or the last calf was killed in early September, he said, 
this wolf will get one more chance, you know, it's one more chance. And then if it causes problem, you know, it's got to go. And I uh, fully agreed with that solution because I, there are some wolves that just cause problems and I don't know how you deal with those problems, you know, especially after we've exhausted all of the options we had available to us. Um, and so anyway, so luckily this wolf actually left the ranch and actually dispersed from the area and uh died in in actually in october and i can't comment on how it died um but it, it's no longer alive it, it had nothing to do with this ranch though um but um so that was a really interesting it was just a very interesting summer for us in that sense of what we learned but big picture what we did learn is that um the fence worked on on the vast majority of wolves. So we had nine wolves, collared wolves come into contact with that fence and seven of the nine hit the fence sometimes multiple times and never stepped foot on that ranch. Um, so it kept the majority of wolves off. There obviously were a couple individuals that were creative and figured out how to get on. So what we did do this summer as well, as we started seeing these issues kind of, you know, realize that, okay, there might be a couple wolves that get creative and get on is we actually got some livestock guardian dogs um, that we put on there because we think what probably is the biggest issue is that you have a couple of wolves right now that have a history of getting on that ranch and they know that ranch means food and so they're going to and they're going to hang out around the, the cows and the calves eating calf scat most of the time maybe calves every once in a while and so they have this association we don't want wolves to get that association. We want them to show up on that. If they ever get past that fence and go, this isn't a friendly place to be, you know, I need to get out of here. And having some livestock guardian dogs that hang out with the calves and patrol this fenced in area, it seems like a really great tool. And so we have two of them right now. We're hopefully going to add probably two to four more in the coming uh, couple years here and really have sort of a, a small pack of guardian dogs that are kind of patrolling that area. And I think it's highly unlikely uh, once those dogs, once you really get, you know, four or six dogs on there, that you're going to have a wolf that's going to be bold enough to come come on there because there's going to be six uh, dogs that really want to come at it. And those guardian dogs are big, <laughs> they're scary. And, you know, you think about, and this kind of feeds back into what we talked about earlier about pack wolves versus lone wolves in the summer most of the wolves getting on this ranch are by themselves it's not like they're in a big pack that are going to take on a dog it's like it's just them and our wolves on average are about 65 to 70 pounds these guardian dogs are like 130 140 pounds you know yeah, so like they're almost twice as big as as the wolves and i just don't see that i just yeah i don't think a wolf is going to stick around very long once it's harassed and if they come on repeatedly and they get harassed multiple times I don't think there's going to be any incentive for them to come back. So we're really optimistic that this is going to be sort of the, the golden ticket. And if we can end this problem for good, I think it's going to be one of these things that people in the Midwest can point to. And, you know, as they're trying to get funding for, let's say, other non-lethal projects and say, hey, there's this other project that worked. We were able to demonstrate, had lots of problems. We invested a, a good chunk of money up front but we solved the problem and now we're not paying to reimburse the rancher for lost calves. We're not paying for sending trappers out like long-term problem solved. And that's kind of what we're hoping for and, and cautiously optimistic for. So next year will be a real interesting year to see what happens. And sorry, if you were to answer this, I had to run and check on my little guy, but connecting the dots on kind of what we we're talking about before, 
uh, about the the summer being a time for wolves really to to hunt solo and the winter being times for maybe them to come back together and hunt as a pack. And I assume because winners mean more vulnerable prey, have you guys come across any findings that would suggest that that wolves are worse on domestic cattle in the summer or or is there any distinction between summer and winter? So most of the time in most areas, uh, predation on cattle is going to spike in the summer when mm-hmm. there's calves. So in our area, like wolves almost never uh, have basically never killed adult cows on this ranch or it's like exceedingly uh, rare. Um, mm. They're almost always going after calves. Mm. And then once the calves are large enough, like in the winter time, um, they've basically had no issues. And in part of that, in, in, and I should note Minnesota, like it's, you know, there's obviously very different livestock practices in let's say the Midwest than there are out West in terms of house. And, you know, so it's not necessarily going to translate. There's some things that could be very different. If you went to, let's say Oregon or Washington, you were in Minnesota, but in Minnesota, you know, you have small par- privately owned ranches or farms. And then like in the winter time, the cattle, like at this particular ranch are going to be brought in close to the barns where they're going to be fed hay for most of the winter um, and things like that. And so they're not going to be out, you know, roaming necessarily. Uh, additionally, uh, in the winter time, the calves are grown up and the, the cows are big. And so even if bulls got on this ranch in the winter time, we have very little concern that they're going to do anything. Like it's just, you know, so, so people ask us like, Oh, what if snow drifts come up and they can hop over? It's like, that's fine in the winter time if that happens because that's not really our concern. It's so most of the the problem with wolves happens between like uh, May to August, um, and that's and I should also note it's it's partly obviously there's calves that are small, but the other thing is that that's also the leanest time of year for wolves mm. uh, throughout the whole yearly cycle is May to August, and so not only do you have these young vulnerable sort of calves, but then you also have really hungry wolves that are trying to figure out how to get enough food. And so it's a bad combination uh, that happens. And that's likely why once wolves, you know, make a connection, hey, cows are food, it's very hard to stop that. And so there is some, there are, I think, limitations to some non-lethal, like non-lethal tools are great for proactive, preventing problems from forming. Right. Stopping wolves from making that association. But I think they can be sometimes a bit, less effective when you have wolves that know this is food and now you're kind of reacting because wolves are just so good at taking like uh, figuring out those patterns i mean it's like if anyone has a dog i mean just think your dog is well fed but if your dog figures out a clever way to get food or something like that like it's hard to break those habits except with diligent training right and now think about you've got a wild predator that is has a a drive that's probably a hundred times stronger to get food you know they're going to be very driven to to get that and so that can be a very difficult thing to stop yeah yeah that, i mean again that makes 100 percent sense what's the what was the feeling like for you all that there was this um partnership that really was going on because it really seemed again to to hear that there is at least some form of acceptance of non-lethal methods and allowing the process to take shape what was that feel like, I guess, for, for you, the project, for everyone involved? It really seemed like there was a little bit of rope given to see how this all played out, even when there was a depredation. So, I mean, I commend 
all parties involved just to see this through at least to <coughs> this point when we get to this summer, obviously when the summer coming up in 24 to see how it all hammers out. But how did that feel for you all as trying to push this and, and, and try to come at it from a different angle that everyone would, that agreed upon this? It was, well, I'd say in the end, when you look back at the whole summer, we, I'm very happy with how it, it went in terms of, you know, it, the way it worked out. Um, in the sense of like how we work through these obstacles, that isn't to say, I mean, there, we had a lot of just kind of moments that were, I'd say tense, but I don't think it was cause anyone, like everyone was frustrated by and large. Like we were frustrated. It wasn't working. You know, the rancher was frustrated. He was in cows. Like it just was like, man, we put a lot of effort and this isn't what we expected. I think what was so, but I think by and large, what was beneficial is we had good communication between, uh, the rancher ourselves wildlife services we all chatted about okay here's our options you know what are we gonna how are we gonna work through this and i think you know it was there was nothing that said the rancher had to to say let's rely on non-lethal techniques he easily could have told wildlife services come in here and let's deal with this problem right but i think what we i think the benefit for us here was like solve killing let's say these problem wolves would solve an immediate problem but it wouldn't solve that problem for us the next year or the following year. And I think so there is a certain amount of it that is in the self-interest of the rancher himself. And obviously for our project, we were very curious to learn from these animals too. And if we got rid of, let's say a, a wolf that was causing problems, well, that's a wolf we can't learn any information from now and then adapt to solve that problem the next year. Um, and so I, I think this is the, the the real sweet spot, I think, with some of this non-lethal work is when you, it becomes advantageous for everybody. So when the incentive becomes for folks to say, hey, I can solve my problems. Like, I'm a rancher. I Maybe they don't even like wolves. But if they just think to themselves, like, either gonna, I'm going to have to continue dealing with this problem every year or, you know, it's possible I can implement these things or get some grant funding to do this thing and I don't maybe have to deal with this problem anymore. Well, that's beneficial for them economically and also on the just, you know, stress level. They don't have to worry about it all the time. And I think if you have agencies such as wildlife services, who in our area, you know, put seems more resources into non-lethal things, they keep a lot of their employees funded. They get to explore these projects and, and there's going to be probably no shortage of having to deal with non-lethal stuff because we're never going to eliminate wolf, problems that always exist in some capacity um but i think by and large like i'm really happy that we we were able to work together because we all come at this ang this problem and i'm wolves and livestock from very different angles and our jobs are very different my job is very different than wildlife services who are the people getting right angry phone calls from ranchers whose calves are getting eaten right and want something done about it and the ranchers is very different from ours who doesn't probably never body be part of a wolf research project to a degree you know he just doesn't want wolves eating his cattle right and and so i think that's been one of the best things about this project has been three entities that all have very different maybe perspectives different end goals identifying something that we can all work towards and agreeing on and and also working with each other even if we might not always agree with each other and i think we've lost a lot of that sadly like just societally and and also you see this a lot with wolf related stuff it's like we don't have to always be see the world exactly the same but we can find ways to work together to compromise to give a little bit to find some way through that isn't 
like full of vitriol and, and nastiness. Like there are ways to work together, even with people who see the world differently. And I think that's probably the part of this that I think is the most um, pleasing. And, and I'll tell a little story that kind of highlights some of this. And uh, so when we first, when I first showed up in 2015 to, to Voyagers, we were driving down the gravel road that goes to this ranch. And we were in a, at that time, uh, myself and Austin Honkus, who's a field biologist on the project, who was at that time my volunteer assistant for my graduate work. We were driving in a government truck uh, from the Park Service, going down the road, collecting wolf scats. And we were real jazzed and geeked. And I didn't know the area very well. And so this truck comes up behind <laughs> us, rolls down the window and, and says, what's the federal government doing down here these days? Right. And I go on this little spiel about how we're doing this cool little study on wolves and beavers. And I thought it was super cool. And, uh, and ah. I learned through this discussion that, um, this person who pulled up was the rancher at the end of the road. Wow. And I oh. told him about the study and, and he just goes, huh, another wow. study. And then just drives away, <laughs> just leaves, <laughs> you know, and I was like, that guy doesn't like oh. us, you know? Mm. And, uh, and I think you can, and, and, uh, and again, different perspectives, but turns out like we've gotten to know them and work with them. And, and like I said, I think we haven't had a really nice time working with him and mm. we've worked through a lot of challenges together and it's been really yeah. informative. I've learned a lot right. working with him about stuff about ranching that I had no idea, right? Challenges, et cetera. So anyways, I'm on a little bit of a rant here, but I think it's just been really, it's been uplifting to work with somebody who, you know, sees something totally different from you maybe but that you can still work together towards a common goal. I I mean, that's that's a great way to to kind of cap this whole thing off because you really, like you said, it just demonstrates that when we all come at it from different angles but find a common goal in the middle, it works out fairly, for the most part, fairly well. And like you said, issues will always arise on either side, but it's, you know, could, that's a great story, by the way. I mean, that's, if that's on a full circle moment, I don't know what it is. <laughs> the, the rancher coming. <laughs> and, it, and it was a, it was a full circle. Cause I was terrified. The first time you said that I was like, Oh gosh, you know, I was intimidated by it, you know? And, and then you find out like, yeah, there's, you know, there's reasons for the perspectives that certain people have. And just because you have one moment of, you know, uncertainty, there's still ways you can work with or, or unpleasantness. There's still moments that you can find ways to work together and move forward. And I think that's what we've tried to do. Again, your social media, your website, everything that Voyagers does is, is really top notch. And it, I love the transparency of all the research of, of getting involved in, in some of these issues. And that's, that's why I'm glad that we, we touched on the three things we touched on today, because you guys really, uh, just really hit every sort of corner and niche about what it is to study wolves, to study this ecosystem, and to study the, the area around you. Just, Tom, give everybody, once again, just uh, the places where they can find the research, uh, look up what you guys are doing next. If there is something that's coming up next, you know, let them all know what's up. Sure. So, yeah, you can follow our project. Social media is the best place to do it. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we've, and Threads. I don't know if Threads is going anywhere long term, but we're on there for right now. Um, and so those are the best places to go. That's where we'll be announcing stuff. We'll, I think we're going to be doing a, last winter, we did a winter webinar series where we touched on some of our research we were doing and some other topics. So that's a good spot to, um, if you're interested in that, stay tuned there and we'll have info about those webinars and where you can watch them and things like that. Um, otherwise we've got our website, 
our website isn't where we, we don't post a lot of new stuff on there necessarily. So, but it's got general information there and how you can get a hold of us and things like that. Awesome. Tom Gable, just uh, hopefully we won't make it two years without talking to you again, but you know, it seems like you guys are, are just really, really knocking out of the park. Thanks again for, for explaining all this stuff. Um, you didn't rant and ramble. We love listening to, to people like you discuss these things and, and really give all the information out to the public. So really appreciate your time and, and hanging out with us for a little bit more than an hour. Really. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Yeah. Just, uh, hang tight for a minute while we sign off. Uh, how's to you all out there and Steven, I'll be with you next time. Bye everybody. Looking for more information about Wolf Connection or the podcast? Please visit our website at wolfconnection.org where you can donate, sponsor a wolf, or become a volunteer.